Well, welcome. Thank you so much uh, to Dr. David Within for being here with our first episode of Classical Crossroads. So happy to have you with us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I'd like to start out with um, an introduction with your very impressive credentials. So Dr. David Within, um, PhD, is the founding head of school at Jacksonville Classical Academy in Jacksonville, Florida. He's a veteran of the United States Army. He earned his MA and PhD in humanities with a focus in literature at Faulkner University in Montgomery, Alabama. Dr. Within has taught various subjects, including history and literature at the elementary, middle and high school levels. He's also taught college composition, humanities and literature. Dr. Within's academic interests center broadly on intellectual history and the ways in which ideas develop over long periods of time. He's particularly interested in the influences and responses to ancient classical and medieval philosophy and mythology in 20th century African-American thought. Dr. Within's areas of expertise and interest also include classical education, American literary and philosophical history, and the great books tradition. Dr. Within's writing has been published in journals and magazines such as Classical Receptions Journal, Black Perspectives, Phylon, Formal Journal, and The Explicator. His first book, Co-Workers in the Kingdom of Culture, Classics and Cosmopolitanism in the Thought of W.E.B. Du Bois will be released by Oxford University Press in spring of 2022. Dr. Within currently lives in Jacksonville, Florida with Vanessa, his wife, and three children. So happy to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, and um, I am really looking forward to this book when it comes out. I have um, just been kind of following that for a while and wondering when is it coming? When is it coming? Um, Because Du Bois is one of my absolute favorite thinkers. So I wanted to just start out by asking you to kind of give us a sense of how you came to classical education. I find that people's stories of how they come to classical education are often so very interesting. Uh, yeah, I, so I did not receive a, a classical education in my, my K through 12 experience. Uh, if there was an opposite to classical education, that was probably what I received. Uh, I went to a, a number of different schools growing up, uh, moved to, to uh, a few different states uh, in my early years in Michigan and then eventually in Florida, Pennsylvania and Maryland um, and had the opportunity to attend uh, you know, schools in all of those states um, and and did not receive a particularly uh, good education uh, in the, the public schools in any of them. Um, and in fact, there was a, a point in my high school career where where I strongly considered leaving. I, I you know, for extended periods of time, didn't show up. Um, and was considering taking the GED test and just dropping out. Um, and much of that, I think, had to do with being a sort of intellectually oriented young man, uh, you know, a, a middle schooler and teenager. Uh, a, you know, I'm on my own. I would go I would skip school where I was bored to tears most days to go to the library and, and read the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, so this is the kind of, you know, 14 year old that I was. And I. I so I, I finally did graduate. I, I made it all the way through, uh, went into the military, 
had children of my own very young and wanted something better for them. And that was initially what led me to classical education was looking for an alternative because I, I didn't feel that I could uh, put my own through children through the experiences that I had had at, at mm -hmm. uh, uh, non-classical schools. Uh, and so uh, during my time um, in the military, I also uh, went to, to college uh, and um, discovered classical education and then eventually uh, discovered, uh, you know, the great books and the idea of uh, the great books and uh, uh, oriented my my uh, graduate studies around that going to Faulkner University uh, and their great books honors college in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, and, and I knew that, uh, you know, from the moment that I discovered classical education, I knew that I had to be uh, not just a, a, um, a parent of classically educated children, but that I had to be an educator um, and that I had to be a classical educator and wanted above all else to to make classical education available to children who would not otherwise have access to it. Right. Um, and that uh, that became uh, for me um, in terms of my career and, and academic interests, a sort of a driving force. Hmm. That's fascinating. So it sounded like you said that you discovered some of classical education in college. Is that right? A bit, a bit. Uh, it was, it was, um, it was a, a side interest. Uh, so I was not, I did not receive a, a great books education or classically oriented education in my, uh, my undergraduate years. But um, I, I was happy though, to, to be able to get that, uh, um, to, to move into a great books program for my, uh, my graduate education. And so um, I am I'm partially classically educated uh, in, in that sense. Um, but uh, uh, much of my my classical education really has come through being a classical educator uh, and in working with, you know, my own children, as well as, of course, my students. So can you give us a sense of the chronology? Because it sounded like you'd said that it was when you started thinking about your own children's education mm -hmm. that you really came to an appreciation of classical education. So was that before you entered graduate school or was this all happening at the same time? I, I had children very young. I had my my first son was born when I was 19. So I uh, uh, so, yes, I well before my my graduate education began, I was uh, developing this interest in or, or discovering classical education for myself. And of course, I think like many people, I discovered it through uh, Susan Weisbauer and, and mm. her. So. Excellent. So how what did you ultimately decide to do for your children? Uh, so we homeschooled uh, my my eldest son. He's still homeschooled. Uh, my daughter is a student at Jacksonville Classical Academy, where I'm the head of school, and and uh, she is in the sixth grade this year. Okay, all right. So that's fascinating because it seems like we have similar stories in in a sense. Because what brought me to classical education was also my children, mm. and it was you know getting exposed to the ideas of classical education, homeschooling them, um, which I did for eleven years. Um, so did it from the beginning, and then it's only just this year when our family has moved to a new city and I have different kind of work um, that they are now in a school for the first time ever um, and it's a classical school oh, and we're just we're so grateful so it's it's just so wonderful how our children 
can actually lead us on these journeys that we never would have imagined otherwise. It's been really a blessing for, for all of us. Absolutely. All right. So I wanted to get into this wonderful book that is coming out and congratulations with Oxford University Press. Very, very exciting. And we will be looking forward to that next year. So in that book, you're looking at W.E.B. Du Bois and how he engages the classical tradition. All right. And so I wanted to know how did you come to be interested in Du Bois and kind of a larger question? You know, there are lots of classical educators, but relatively few who decide to really intensively engage the black intellectual tradition as part of their interest in the classics. So I want if we could first just tell me kind of the, the larger story of what brought you to the black intellectual tradition and their engagement with the classics, and then specifically what draws you to Du Bois and your decision to write this book. Yeah. So again, uh, you know, my children and my students uh, being the, the driving force there. So, you know, my, my family is, is a diverse family and um, my uh, students <clears throat> at uh, the school that I started as, as an educator, it was in Savannah, it was Savannah Classical Academy. Um, about 85% of our students were African-American there. And um, it, it was uh, Du Bois, uh, I discovered in the same year that I, I began as a teacher and uh, reading the souls of black folk um, and, and reading his defense of, uh, of classical education, you know, in 1903, uh, it, it was it was many of the same sort of arguments that we were encountering in Savannah in 2012, mm. um, you know, arguments in in favor of a, a sort of vocational technical training, arguments about the classics being culturally irrelevant, uh, et cetera. And, and it, it was, I, it, um, I, I think I read Souls of Black Folk in, in two sittings over two days. Uh, it, and, and it was because the, uh, the things that he was talking about were so relevant to the things that I was, you know, living through in, in, in a sense, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so he, he and his defense of classical education, uh, spoke to me and opened me up to the wider, uh, African-American intellectual tradition. Um, and it was, it was, I, I think there were, you know, so that was one catalyst. And then another catalyst was, uh, to look at a, a sort of more cosmopolitan approach to classical education. Again, um, you know, being the father of children with uh, diverse ethnic backgrounds and heritages and wanting to celebrate all of their their heritage. And the same thing, Brent, being the, the teacher and, and uh, leader of, of students who come from diverse backgrounds and wanting to um, in, ensure that all of their heritages are incorporated and celebrated and that all of this can be a part of classical education. That is outstanding. And I just love this vision of you um, and Du Bois essentially becoming friends. You know, it, it's it's kind of like you're you're dealing with this issue in your life and you turn to Du Bois and you say, oh, my goodness, this this is exactly what I'm dealing with. You understand my life, you know, um, yeah. so you were able to kind of allow Du Bois to help you think through these issues and, and what you were dealing with. 
he he has been uh, he has been a friend for many years now. But we met in my backyard in downtown Savannah uh, <laughs> almost uh, almost a decade ago. <laughs> That's wonderful. That's wonderful. All right, uh, let's see. And for for those. Um, in our audience who may not be so familiar with W.E.B. Du Bois, can you just kind of give a little bit of a summary of who he is, when he lived, why he's noteworthy? Yeah, uh, where to begin? Uh, So to mark out his years, uh, he lived from 1868 uh, till 1963. And so he passed away at the age of 95. um, And he lived during you know, that's a, a century of life there. And that century, of course, is the century that spans the end of the Civil War, uh, just three years before his birth, and the, um, in many ways, the peak of the Civil Rights Movement. He, he died uh, the night before Martin Luther King delivered his I Have a Dream speech uh, during the March on Washington. Um, and so you have this, you know, this, this century uh, and he is involved in in every aspect of it, uh, and and uh, you know, beginning with uh, uh, the Reconstruction era um, in the South, uh, um, and and going through you know the Civil Rights Movement and, and the Internationalist Movement that arises uh, in the 1940s and 50s following World War II. Uh, he was born in the North, so he was born in Massachusetts, raised in a majority white town in Massachusetts, uh, and was recognized very early on by his principal, a man named Frank Hosmer, as being um, a, a particularly um, intellectually endowed young man. Uh, and, and so his principal went out of his way, for example, to ensure that young Willie, as he was called at that time, but would never be called again for the rest of his life. <laughs> uh, and he made sure of that, uh, that, that he had access to his books to study Greek and Latin, for example, uh, which his, his family would not have otherwise been able to afford. Um, and he knew that, that this was putting Du Bois on the track to uh, being able to go into college. And interestingly, Du Bois made an interesting um, decision to go south for college, right? So here he is, uh, raised in, in the north, uh, born to a free black family in the north, and decides to go south uh, in the decades following the Civil War to attend Fisk University. Uh, and so he attends Fisk University for his his, his undergraduate studies uh, and then moves on eventually to Harvard. Uh, he studies for uh, uh, just a bit at the University of Berlin uh, at the time, the foremost university in the world. It was then called Friedrich Wilhelm University. Uh, unfortunately, the funding ran out and he had to return before he was able to attain his doctoral degree there. Uh, so he went back to Harvard and settled, as as he would think of it, settled for a Harvard Ph.D., Uh, and became the first African-American to earn a Harvard PhD. Uh, And then went on to uh, uh, participate in in sort of the incipient civil rights movement. Of course, his famous battle with Booker T. Washington over a number of things, but most notably, perhaps, uh, especially in in this context, over the sort of education that the children of the freedmen should be receiving, uh, was, of course, a major marker in his life. Um, And he was a a co-founder of the NAACP, the, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and um, 
uh, you know, throughout his his uh, life, wrote uh, a number of of very important works, essays, uh, novels, poems. Um, of course, most significantly and most well known is the the Souls of Black Folk, uh, written in 1903. This collection of uh, essays and a short story um, that uh, I think is is universally considered the the most important of his works. And he wrote it while a relatively young man. I. I don't want to compare, but he was about my age when he wrote it. Uh, and so I, I look at that and go, my goodness, what am I doing with myself? Uh, <laughs> um, so that's, that is that is Du Bois, I think, in a nutshell. <laughs> or as much as you can capture a century in, in uh, 90 seconds. <laughs> no, absolutely. He was amazingly prolific. Um, and my training is in sociology. So, you know, uh, yeah. we, we claim him as a, a sociologist. Um, and a pioneering sociologist, really very extraordinary and very unusual because, as you say, you know, he wrote in multiple genres. You know, yeah. So he was a kind of old school intellectual, right? Mm -hmm. You know, kind of very, very broadly trained um, and history and, and sociology was, you know, kind of just really firming up as a discipline um, here with the rise of the research university in the United States. Um, just an extraordinary man all around. Yes, yeah, yeah. In socio sociology, he uh, uh, conducted the first study of an African American community for sociological purposes. That was in uh, what 1898, 1899, and then went on to publish a, a series over a, a, a decade um, uh, studying every aspect of Black life in the South uh, um, through his Atlanta University studies. That's right. You know, he, he was he was amazing. Yeah. The Philadelphia Negro is, you know, very, very much a, a trend setter. And then, as you say, that ongoing work um, from Atlanta brought researchers together from across the country. So, you know, just really, really wonderful. Now, in your book, so you have uh, a way of engaging Du Bois that, you know, I found really fascinating and that as a sociologist had not been the kind of entree that I've had to Du Bois before. And so I really have appreciated your work quite a lot. And so I wanted to get a little bit into that because uh, Du Bois's engagement with the classics um, is at the heart of what we're trying to do at Classical Crossroads. And um, so there are parts of Du Bois's thought that you see as being very rooted in Plato. And so I wanted to talk about that foundational role that platonic thought played in Du Bois's writing and particularly the Republic. And so there are a couple parts of the Republic where you really see Du Bois kind of taking um, significant inspiration for his social and political thought. And so the first has to do with Du Bois's sense of um, the, the necessity of having an elite, mm -hmm. but having that be balanced by a kind of democratic impulse. And so most people see those as opposed, you know, they don't really understand how you can both have an elite, but then also have that rooted in a kind of democratic structure and ethos. And so I wanted you to say some about, you know, how does Du Bois manage that? And how is that indebted to Plato's writing in the Republic? 
Yes. Uh, so the, the the terminology that I I use in writing about this topic is a sort of egalitarian elitism. Uh, and so for Du Bois, Du Bois does not reject that there are differences among people. Uh, he would he would say that those differences are not um, matters of, of race and ethnicity, uh, that they are um you know, they are matters of, of individual difference, right? And so there are some people who are, uh, you know, more intellectually oriented, some people who are uh, less intellectually oriented. Uh, and, uh, and so he's not, he's not uh, denying that, that um, you know, that people have varying abilities, right? Um, and so for, for him, this is, this is sort of the elitist element of his thought. And, and, I, and I don't mean to use the term elitism in a way that sort of casts judgment on it, right? One can evaluate it on its own merits, but it's clearly an elitist idea. The idea that there are some people who are just naturally um, leaders, naturally uh, the uh, guides of their community, this sort of thing. Um, and the, the democratic element, though, the, the egalitarian element, uh, is that these people can be born in even the humblest of circumstances. Um, and for Du Bois, this is, this is um, you know, a, a very, um, very immediate concern because he's looking at uh, specifically the African-American communities of the South, but, but of the United States as a whole at this point, and uh, looking at the need for, for leadership. Um, and by leadership, he means uh, lawyers and doctors and pastors and, and people that can can guide a community and and uplift it. Right. Um, and and living in the wake of the Civil War, uh, living uh, in the, the Reconstruction and post Reconstruction era, um, his his goal is ultimately a kind of, of um, for lack of a better term, civilization building. It is to take the, the uh, freedmen and the freedmen's sons and then grandsons and uh, uh, to, you know, to form them into a people. Uh, with a capital P, uh, and and they need leadership, according to, to Du Bois, to do this. And so he looks back to Plato's Republic for his guidance here. And uh, Plato's theory that there are, uh, again, people who are the, the elitist element, again, people who are, uh, in a sense, sort of natural leaders and people who are sort of natural followers, um, and that those people uh, can come from each other, in a sense, right? That that uh, it's it's not impossible that uh, somebody who was born into the uh, the the leadership class could, in fact, not be a natural leader, and somebody who was born into more humble circumstances could, in fact, be uh, someone that is destined for or or intended for this kind of leadership. And so, for Du Bois, this means that everybody needs access to education as early as possible, uh, and they need access to a quality education as early as possible uh, to prepare uh, people from the time that they are six years old to be. Smiths and Masons and, and uh, farmers and, and et cetera, uh, for Du Bois is, is foolishness, right? We have to prepare them to be leaders and uh, get them as far as they can towards that. And for Du Bois, he's looking to the classical tradition. He's saying a classical education is what prepares people to be leaders. Uh, so everybody should be receiving this kind of classical education. And those who can follow it all the way through should. Uh, and this will become the, the leadership class. Uh, and those who cannot, well, wonderful. They've been educated to 
to be great citizens. And now they can go and study farming or masonry or, or these other trades. Uh, but to merely train, train someone for a trade will never be sufficient because you'll never have leaders. You're, you're essentially, and this is his ultimate argument against Booker T. Washington's um, advocacy of vocational and technical education at this point, uh, if you don't do this, you're going to create a caste system. If all that you're doing is training this particular set of people from the time that they are children to the to all the way through to adulthood uh, to lay bricks well and to uh, farm well and etc., then you are creating a caste system in which these people will always be laborers. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, Du Bois, uh, looking back to the longer history of Western thought on leadership and education, and um, you know, of course, we can get into the the kind of distinction that that the Greeks and Romans make between uh, the various styles of education, servile education versus, um, you know, ultimately a classical education, a humanistic education. Uh, you know, he's saying this is the kind of education that we need as a people for our children and for ourselves. Mm. That's really good. Yes. Um, that that idea of a kind of egalitarian elitism is fascinating. And as you say, you know, we could have a larger discussion about elitism itself and mm-hmm. how desirable it is or isn't. Um, and of course, classical education is often seen as being an elitist education, which is, you know, part of the some of the controversy over it. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But I think what's key in what you're saying is that there is this sense that everyone needs access to this kind of humanistic education, even if they are going to go on to be a stonemason or something else. But most importantly, we can't know in advance who those leaders are going to be. Right. 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 Um, And so I think that is what is is also so important And for Du Bois, especially in the context in which he's writing post-emancipation with the the raging debates over what kind of education for black people. And as you referenced the the very intense um, debate between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, it was not at all settled that um, black Americans should have access to what was seen as this kind of elite classical education. Um, So, you know, as I was Reflecting on your writing on Du Bois um, and it kind of connecting it back to the Republic and particularly the myth of metals. Um, interestingly, I was just recently teaching this myth of metals in a class of mine in a mm-hmm. seminar. And so I, you know, had the students in my college class, you know, kind of just summarize the myth and what happened. And I asked them, so what, what do you think about this? You know, what do you think about this process, this idea of there being these um, differently um, valued kinds of people, you know, equated with different kinds of metals, gold, silver, bronze, iron. Um, and they were very against it. You know, they, they were very upset. They were very offended. You know, what? how are some people just definitely, you know, going to be the golden people and other people are going to be the iron people and it's so unfair. It's so unjust. Um, and what was interesting, you know, kind of connecting to what you said about Du Bois saying that people do have different kinds of, of gifts and talents as we kept talking more um, and students reflected on it more. They said, well, yeah, I actually do think that people mm-hmm. do have different giftings and talents and 
Um, it might be problematic if, you know, the society were being led by people who didn't have a gift for leadership. Uh, that could be bad for everyone, you know, right. so not to come to any particular you know, conclusions about the, the, the merits of elitism or, or not having elites, you know, um, uh, or egalitarian elites. And then there are also questions about how do people come into those positions? You know, but what what is fascinating about that myth is that, you know, once you really look at it, it's pretty revolutionary, right? Yep. Because it's saying that people who were born into the elite could also be deposed. Mm -hmm. And so it's not assumed that they're just going to glide into the leadership position just because their parents were leaders, but they might actually turn out to be better suited to be farmers or artisans. So even though on the surface, you know, the, the initial reaction, I think, especially amongst us in the 21st century United States, um, where we're very committed to this idea of equality mm -hmm. on the surface, it seems objectionable. But then when you start really thinking about it, you know, it, there would be a lot of controversy because things could go in the other direction um, that you're saying <laughs> that those who are privileged Right. can't automatically pass that privilege on to their children. Yeah. That, that is not taken for granted. And so in Du Bois's way of thinking, you know, this idea that, okay, so, you know, Black Americans in general are coming from a very lowly position. Of course, there were always some elite um, Black Americans, but for the most part coming from humble conditions. And he's saying, well, yeah, but some of those are destined to be leaders. You know, we don't really know um, intimately what their giftings are. But the, the reverse of that's also true. It's, it's a kind of subtle critique of the status quo as well. And those who have been in power and privilege and saying, you know, is that necessarily how the structure of our society should be? And this is the, the group that Du Bois refers to as the talented 10th, this, this leadership group. And what he points to is that in any group of people, he says, there are um, a 10th that um, you know, have these sort of, of abilities or gifts or this talent for uh, leadership, this talent for um, you know, guiding others. And it's important to note, too, that, that Du Bois does not see this merely as a matter of privilege, uh, but as actually a sort of responsibility, right? That by, because you are given this gift for leading and guiding other people, it is your responsibility to lead and guide uh, others and to uh, help to educate, to help to uplift. Um, and so for Du Bois, uh, you need, as I think for, for Plato in the Republic, you need this talented tent, this, this group of uh, you know, endowed individuals who um, can guide the group for the good of the group. And that's an important, I think, aspect of that as well. Um, and this is something that Du Bois is, is very, um, uh, you know, does quite a bit. Is, is points off the failings of that group, both the uh, the elite in in among Americans in general, um, but the elite among African Americans uh, as well, uh, in their failure to um, reach back to those who who need the the support and assistance and and the uplift um, that that he'd like to see. And that leads directly into the allegory of the cave. Um, and so could you say something about how Du Bois engages that allegory in his thought? 
Yeah, it it is. It seems to to run throughout much of his writing. It's it's a metaphor that, uh, or an allegory that he appeals to frequently and in, in a variety of ways. Um, I, I think the you know one of the most famous passages in the souls of black folk begins with "I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not," and this is I think a um, a reference to the allegory of the cave. Right, he's naming all of these. Uh, sort of canonical authors. He goes through Aristotle and Aurelius and uh, Dumas. Uh, and and uh, interestingly, the, the list that he creates, if one were to map it out, the list of references, he's he is uh, at that point in his career uh, giving us as diverse of a list as he possibly can of, of authors, right? Dumas is um, a, kind of a strange one to name uh, alongside Aristotle and Aurelius, but he's naming him because, of course, Dumas was uh, French and African. And so he's pointing to the sort of uh, um, the universality of the truth with a capital T uh, that that he wants uh, this this talented tenth to become familiar with and to bring the um, the knowledge of to the people as a whole. Now, later, he he, he loves Du Bois. Uh, I think like many people that are involved in classical education, love to list his favorite authors uh, and, and favorite books. Uh, and so he, he gives speeches later on that are clearly expansions of this list, right? So uh, by the 1930s, he's including, uh, you know, people like Confucius on this list of figures, because of course he has a, a growing awareness of um, of world cultures, uh, something that he was not exposed to in his early education. Uh, and so, uh, but the, the point is always the same. The point is always uh, this, this talented 10th goes into the the world of truth, goodness, and beauty with capital T, capital G, and, and capital B, uh, and discovers these these sort of universals of human nature and of um, uh, of the world, and should bring back as much of that as they can um, from the world above back into the cave. Uh, and he he, he even uh, occasionally reverses the allegory. And this is an important part of this as well, right? So not only is he saying well, you have to come out of the cave, you have to come out of the darkness uh, of of uh, poverty, of of oppression, and so on, and reach for um, you know the truth, and then bring it back to the people in the cave so that they too can be free. Uh, but the people who are in the cave have a message for the people on the outside as well, because this, too, is part of the human experience, the experience of racism, the experience of oppression, the experience of slavery has a truth, a message to speak to the world about what it means to be a human being, about what it means to be part of the family of humankind. Uh, and so in, in I believe it's in Dusk of Dawn, there's a passage uh, where he talks about, uh, this is uh, 1920, 1921, uh, he, he, he talks about uh, uh, the people who are in the cave, he refers to a cave, right? And they're screaming at the people outside of the cave, pounding on the glass, he says, but it just, it, the message won't get through. Um, and, and what the message is that they have is, again, it's, it's the message of the endurance of the human spirit and of uh, something innate in, in humankind that even in the most oppressive of circumstances, even in, you know, the 1850s in Mississippi, that there is something there that, that 
longs for and and sort of innately produces beauty uh, and in souls of black folk and in other works as well Du Bois points to uh, the spirituals as as an expression of that um, that this that, that they contain as as Du Bois puts it in in the souls of black folk that they contain a sort of a message for the world um, from uh, the depths of, of some of the greatest oppression that human that the human person has ever known um and and that their their beauty the beauty of the spirituals in their musicality uh as well as the the words of the spirituals in their expression of hope uh the love of freedom the love of truth uh the spiritual etc uh that they 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 show that the again that there's something about human beings that is um uh that it innately longs for truth goodness and beauty and what I love about this is it's it's such a good example of how so many Black writers have turned to the classics, not to just mindlessly mimic them, mm-hmm. right? But right. to really um, creatively and critically engage with them, you know? So mm-hmm. that idea that those in the cave have a message for understanding the essence of the human condition is mm-hmm. such an important innovation and insight. And it also, I think, addresses um, some of the objections to classical education, especially for those who have historically been on the margins. You know, this idea that it is just simple assimilation, um, you know, that it's just reading mainly um, European writers and assimilating to European culture. Whereas what these really excellent um, Black writers have done is they have used that writing as a foundation for their developing their own thought, appreciating it as it is, you know, but then also continuing to enter into that conversation and to advance the conversation, which is a very different enterprise than, well, we're just studying this, you know, because it's better than our culture and we're going to assimilate into it. And I think that's the approach that many people assume is being taken. Right. Right. And, but Du Bois is, is, you know, to to look at the allegory of the cave again, he's in a sense, he's correcting Plato. He's saying, you missed something here, Mm -hmm. right? Plato's Plato's only looking, he's saying the people inside the cave need to get out and forget about that. Right. But Du Bois is saying something different here. He's, He's saying, no, 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 this is, this too is something says something to us about what a human being is and about what it means to be human. Um, and, and so he is engaging in, I like the, the, the way you, you put it there, right? It's, it's not mere sort of mimicking, uh, it is engaging in the great conversation as we frame it or, or phrase it, um, by, by speaking back to those authors, you spoke to me and now I'm going to respond to you. Uh, and that's an important part of, of classical education as well. Exactly, exactly. And this is a perfect lead in then to um, another wonderful piece. So you've got a piece in Forma where you contrast the idea of multicultural education, which is attentive to trying to read text and study texts from diverse cultures. And you contrast um, this kind of multicultural approach to what you call a um, kind of a more classical cosmopolitanism. And I wonder if you could just tell us more about that contrast and your approach to, to diverse texts and classical education. 
Sure. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 I really struggled with the terminology there and I, I do want to, you know, to, to say that. So I think the, the, the real contrast to be made is, is uh, seeing something as other and studying it as somebody else's. Um, which I think is is often the point of emphasis when we talk about multiculturalism in education versus seeing something as um, related to me because this is an expression of our common human nature, which I, I view as the more cosmopolitan approach. Um, and so when we're when we're studying uh, the texts of other cultures, the art of other cultures, the ideas of, of cultures that may not be ours, um, what I uh, what I like to encourage my children and, and my students to do is to to try to to glean from that. What what is this? How does this speak to to uh, the universal human condition? How does this speak to you? Not just well, these people believe this and these people believe that, but you know what is the, what is it uh, that this says about what we as human beings are or, or ought to be? Um, and I, I think of uh, I'm, I'm reading rereading uh, again C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, mm-hmm. and I I like that he uses the word Tao, you know, this Chinese philosophical term to refer to uh, what he really is, is referring to is in the Western tradition is the logos, right? The um, sort of reigning, you know, philosophical ordering principle in the nature of things and in in, in uh, human nature as well. Uh, but he chooses Tao to emphasize the universality of the concept and, of course, the universality of uh, the thing itself that the, the word is pointing to. Um, and I think that classical education, with its emphasis on, again, T, capital T, truth, uh, provides us an inlet to studying diverse texts in a way that does not other them, in a way that does not say, well, this is theirs, but instead, this is ours. Um, and this is a, a, something that I, I emphasize very frequently with my students of all heritages and backgrounds, is that if you find something, no matter where you're finding it, right? If you are an African-American student and you are reading Marcus Aurelius or you are reading Homer and you discover something there that speaks to your life and speaks to the human condition that is yours yeah right it is it is in perhaps in some in some sense it is you know um the peculiar heritage of people from greece uh or people from the italian peninsula but it's yours because it's human and the same thing is true when you're looking at the, the writings of Confucius, right? You're reading the Analects and you discover something. I've never been to China. I, I, I've, uh, the closest I've been is thousands of miles away. Uh, but uh, there are passages in the Analects that speak to me and that, that um, uh, teach me something about what it means to be human. And so in that sense, Confucius is, is mine, right? Is, uh, is part of... Um, my experience of the world and, and therefore uh, is, is um, you know, a testimony to the universality of what it means to be a human being. That's wonderful. Really wonderful. So I want to move to your work with Jacksonville Classical Academy. And can you give us a little bit of the backstory of how you became the founding head? Sure. So I, I've given uh, just a, a bit before about um, 
specifically uh, wanting to, as I moved into out of the military and into being an educator, um, seeking out opportunities to work uh, in a classical school with students who would not otherwise have access to classical education, right? And so I was involved uh, in the founding of a, a school in Savannah, uh, um, Savannah Classical Academy. Um, I was a, a teacher there for five years and um, uh, just a wonderful experience. And, and we just they just had their first graduating class uh, two years ago um, and then their second uh, uh, last year. And it's been great to uh, hear from some of my former students. These were children that were in fifth and sixth grade when I, I was their teacher uh, and who are now freshmen and sophomores in college. Oh. And said, yeah, it's wonderful. Um, and, and so after that, uh, I taught briefly at a, a college uh, and um, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I love it. Uh, teaching is always great, but there's something that uh, I, I enjoy working with children. And um, so when I, I found out uh, that there were a group of people in Jacksonville who were looking to create a uh, diverse classical school uh, here, uh, just two hours south of Savannah, I, I knew I had to be a part of it. Uh, and so Jacksonville Classical Academy, we're now in our, our second year, and we have just over 800 students. Um, and it is, it is, yeah, it's wonderful. And uh, we are, we're, so we're currently kindergarten through seventh grade. Uh, we started last year kindergarten through sixth grade, and we'll keep adding a grade every year. Um, and our students come from every neighborhood, every zip code in Jacksonville. Um, about 50% of our students are African-American, uh, about 45% are white, uh, and then about 5% are, are Asian and Latino. Um, just over half, almost 60% of our students qualify for free and reduced lunch. And uh, we're situated right at the heart of Jacksonville. So Jacksonville's a very large city geographically. It's very spread out, uh, and we're, we're almost dead center in the middle of it, so just outside of downtown. And uh, we are in the, the mix and Town neighborhood, which is a historically African American uh, industrial area, fascinating history in the area. Um, not not long after uh, emancipation and the end of the Civil War, uh, there were large African American populations that moved uh, from the outlying areas into the city uh, and sort of concentrated in these industrial areas. Uh, and the site where our school is has actually been a school since that point in history, uh, hmm. so since the the eighteen seventy. There has been uh, some sort of educational institution on that site. Um, and so it's a wonderful thing to be a part of that that legacy and to build on it. And this is, you know, something that I, I often emphasize with um, people from the, the surrounding community and, and with uh, uh, all of the, the faculty and the students at the school is that we're not building on on top of that legacy. We are that legacy. We're building, mm. um, you know, we're building on it, not paving over it. And that, uh, that I think is an important part of our mission. Very nice, very nice. So tell me, um, I'm always really interested in how to connect, you know, kind of the, the theoretical and the scholarly to practice. And so I'm wondering, you know, how has it worked out as founding head um, with this wonderful and beautiful new school? How have you connected some of your scholarly ideas, your idea about a classical and cosmopolitan education to what is actually happening in the classroom there? 
Yeah, I I think that Socratic seminar is the key um, because it is it, it is this opportunity to have a common text, right? That we're all centered around, so we're all looking at the same text, but we've we've circled up our desks. And each of us is bringing our own experiences, our own, um, uh, you know, the fractal parts of the the bigger whole of the human experience to that table. Um, And so creating um, creating a culture in which every student feels safe to share at that table, I think, is is perhaps the, the key to developing the, the, the sort of culture that I've been talking about in classical education. Uh, we can we can take this common text and interpret it in this variety of different ways because we're each bringing our own perspective, our own set of experiences to share. And when we disagree, we, we want to look at why we disagree. And we want to look at how we can learn from those disagreements, not try to talk over top of, of one another or convince the other person that your perspective is the right one, but instead uh, to look for that that common ground. That that um, and, and even if we can't find it, to at least experience that, to, to at least acknowledge that someone else's experience of the world is different and has formed them in a different way than perhaps what your experience has been. Um, and that, I think, it leads to... Uh, uh, not only this this wonderful sharing of ideas and this deeper thinking, but also these these bonds of friendship that will persist, you know, throughout the the rest of our students' lives um, with people that they may not have otherwise known that they had anything in common with. And mm-hmm. that I think is is really the essential in, in how um, much of this philosophy sort of makes itself um, live in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And how does um, some of your thinking manifest in the curriculum? Yeah, so we use the core knowledge curriculum in K through in K through eight, and uh, the core knowledge curriculum, of course, uh, uh, developed by Edie Hirsch and his team, and that is, uh, I, I think. Uh, it does a, a great job. I've not found a lot of need to modify it in terms of how it approaches the variety of cultures in the world and the um, uh, the things that uh, um, are all part of that wider human experience, right? And and uh, so we, you know, our second graders, for example, right now are are studying uh, ancient Indian civilizations. Our fourth graders looking at ancient China, uh, and so I think that that's they're they're getting. Um, those, um, you know, those opportunities to to see the, the story of the world is, is mm-hmm. uh, Susan Weisbauer's phrase, but I, I use it quite right. a bit myself, right? They're getting an opportunity to see the story of the world uh, and to to consider themselves in relation to it. And and so I think that that I think the core knowledge curricula, I, I mean, I, I'm in love with it. And so it's uh, uh, in our K through eight uh, experience. It certainly has been uh um, uh, a be- of benefit to us in in bringing that sort of classical and cosmopolitan approach. Uh, I actually teach a, a section of seventh grade history, uh, and so I uh, I'm teaching. We teach uh, American history in seventh grade, um, and you know my my, my students uh, right now are studying the Declaration of Independence, and so a lot of the questions that we're that we're talking about when we talk about uh, equality and when we talk about uh, human human nature and 
and uh, rights being innate and God given and this sort of thing. Um, these are these are questions that are of um, a great relevance uh, to all of them, uh, and that they are all very eager to share their thoughts on. Uh, uh, and so, giving them the opportunity to to do that in the classroom in a safe setting is for me, um, uh, you know, a wonderful thing. And um, I think in terms of our closing question, I am curious if your students there will be reading Du Bois. Of course they will. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, eighth grade, eighth grade, uh, we, we move on to the second half of American history. Uh, and it it actually it it. it, it picks up almost with the uh, the uh, birth of Du Bois because we start with Reconstruction at the beginning of the year. So I'm looking forward to teaching that same section next year. Wonderful. Well, Dr. David Within, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you and thank you for your work. And we are very much looking forward to that book and just I'm so excited for the work that you're doing at Jacksonville Classical Academy. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. 